Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Diminishing Returns. It's part one of a three-part Quentin Tarantino season that we are undertaking. Just as with our previous seasons, looking at M. Night Shyamalan, the Alien franchise and the Star Wars series, this is going to be a complete retrospective of the works of Quentin Tarantino. This week we begin at the beginning with, well, his early work. Everything up to and including Jackie Brown. Now... Now, please indulge me as this show becomes the thousandth thing to parody that slow-motion iconic sequence from Reservoir Dogs. This episode contains spoilers for... My Best Friend's Birthday! Reservoir Dogs! True Romance, Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers, Four Rooms, From Dusk Till Dawn, and Jackie Brown. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. I'm I'm Sol. Uh, with me, as always, is Mr. Alan Turing, and Hello. this week we are joined by special guest Daniel Straw. Hello there, Dan Straw, Dan the Man, Straw, Straw Man, <laughs> the, the Straw Man, Dan, the Straw Man, the Straw Man argument. <laughs> and it's a special week. It's part one of our uh, season of episodes looking at. The one, the only, 90s provocateur or to Quentin Tarantino. Mr. Film mm. Remix himself. Yeah. All right. So, so. We're, we're doing this as a three-parter. We split his career up into three sections. And this being the first part is going to be the good one. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> have I revealed my feelings already? <laughs> well, I, I hope those are actually, because that's good. That means we're not just going to be parroting each other's opinions back and forth. This sounds yeah. like we might actually get into a bit of a, a spat. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> okay, so um, just to introduce Dan, uh, Dan was someone who was at university with us, just like Calvin was. Uh, so Dan, Dan is my other gay friend, so he seems like the best <laughs> replacement for Calvin. That's it. <laughs> is that you've only got two gay friends? From the north. I thought you were a metropolitan man, so. No. Two gay friends... <laughs> Two black friends. That's the best amount, like, <laughs> of, of any. So, Dan, uh, give us a give us a quick just for the uh, the listeners at home. Give us a quick idea of your film tastes. What's the sort of favorite films? Anything like that? Uh, well, I originally got into like filmmaking because I liked uh, American Beauty, but then uh, Kevin... very pretentious. Mm. Yeah, very this very pretentious. Yeah, I used to call Dan pretentious Pete at uni because he, you know. If there was a new Wes Anderson film on the way out, you could. Oh yeah, got old Wes Anderson as well, <laughs> <laughs> or Michelle Gondry. Yeah, pop down to the cinema and Dan would be there just with a big thing of popcorn. Who doesn't love aesthetically pleasing films? That's like, <laughs> you know, perfectly <laughs> symmetrical <laughs> shots. <laughs> films in French. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, Tarantino. Should we just 
I've gone back and as, as I'm sure you have, Ellen, I I've gone back and rewatched mm-hmm. everything Tarantino had ever like. I'd seen it all before, with the exception yeah. of one or two little side projects that I'll go into when we get there. Mm-hmm. I'd seen it all before. I thought I had a good grasp on the guy. I've gone back and watched everything in chronological order from the start, and it's really my mind's blown how much I feel like I understand this guy now compared to before. <laughs> like I really do feel like I've got a perfect grip on where he's coming to things from, how his career's developed. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, we'll, we'll get into that, I suppose, as this goes on. Yeah, I, d- I don't really want to do two big broad strokes because I haven't rewatched all the films yet. I'm still working my way through them, mm-hmm. um, and so I'd like to rewatch some of the later ones before. Okay. Say, yeah, I'm not really up to date with the with the later ones. It's more his older stuff that I'm a lot more familiar with. But uh... well, focusing on the earlier stuff today, um, I remember at uni, in fact. Dan, you, you'll have to remind me where you fell with this, but I remember it being a big uh, bone of contention when we were at uni, the sort of, are you pro or against Tarantino? Because I, I think he's become less of a divisive figure than he was, but this was mm-hmm. pre-Grind... No, this was pre-Inglorious Bastards. He just made Death Proof uh, Grindhouse. This was when we were at uni. Yeah. So there was this sense that... I mean, not to kind of get ahead of our thoughts on those films, but there was this prevailing feeling of... He's a man on the decline. His career's on the turn. He's kind of making increasingly like just lots of people thought Inglorious Bastards was just going to be a remake of the the seventies film with the almost identical title. Yeah. Um, so there was a sense of oh, he's run out of material. He's a hack. He's a one trick pony. Blah 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 blah. But there's a there's a whole generation of people who who act like he is this filmmaking messiah based on the films we're about to discuss in this episode, his early work, because he really was the the voice of a new filmmaking generation. Really, he, he, he was that kind of I can't think of any other filmmaker that sort of was as influential for that kind of Generation X wave of filmmaking. Um, See, he was. But I personally still think, uh, especially back then, he came across as a bit of an asshole. <laughs> this was it. I mean, I, I, again, I don't quite know how broad I should get. My thoughts on the guy, uh, basically, until very recently, I've always thought, this is a very talented man, not as talented as people make him out to be, because a lot of his films are bordering on just being spoofs, but fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get into that later. Um, but he's clearly, like on the spectrum and has no social skills or self-awareness and has been very lucky and you you what there's a lot of clips <laughs> of him spitting on newscasters and getting into <laughs> heated debates and but yeah uh the thing is I've I've listened to a lot of stuff with Tarantino lately partly because of these podcasts we were doing and I I truly think the man has matured and grown as a person a hell of a lot and I think that comes across in his later films but I don't want to jump too far ahead so this is early Tarantino uh, and he was just kind of like a guy with no social skills who'd watched a load of movies and I think that comes across (laughs) in his films as well (laughs) yes it definitely Um, does Yeah. uh, uh, at the very very start have either of you guys seen My Best Friend's Birthday? No, uh, was it no. even finished? I don't know. Was it? It even... was never completed, but there is a sort of half hour, thirty five minute cut of the film available online now. Um, All right, oh, okay. dig up. Actually, you know what, guys? Before before we get into this, I'm just going to pour myself a tasty beverage to uh, <laughs> okay. to set the tone. 
That's, that's my little Tarantino reference <laughs> for the day. Might smoke a red apple cigarette then. <laughs> and I'm having a wank to Uma Thurman's feet. So. <laughs> that's my reference. <laughs> oh, man. But basically, my best friend's birthday, it was the first attempt at uh, a feature. Apparently, everyone involved just kind of lost interest while they were making it. You can watch it. You can tell it's from the exact same... You can tell he's from the same wave of filmmakers as uh, Kevin Smith, because it's similar to Clerks. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of yeah. incredibly yeah. low-budget thing. And it's basically true romance. There's a lot of the DNA of... In fact, it's almost like a yeah. prequel to true romance. Um, Tarantino plays this guy who works at a radio station who... Mm-hmm. who you, you know that there's there's Elvis men and Beatles men, and I'm not I'm not saying you 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 can't be a Beatles man who likes Elvis, and you can't be an Elvis man who likes the Beatles, but but sometimes a guy got to come to a choice. It's like, all right, all right, great. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about something. You know, I mean, it's not like I don't disagree with you. I mean, as as, as a singer, Elvis. I mean, as a performer with albums and recordings. Nobody could lay a hand on him. I, I agree. Okay. All right. So, so right. Right. I'm, okay. I'm, All right. So we got no problem. Hey, right? We got no problem. As, as, far as, in the as an actor, Clarence, he was a lost cause. This is where we differ. No. This is where we will no. always differ. There's no this argument. Point. There's no argument. We're always going to do that. Sorry. Same goddamn. Marlon Brando is a great actor. And Clarence. he made some shitty movies. Contessa from never, Hong Kong. Never. Is a shitty never movie. made a shitty movie. Clarence. Contessa from Hong never Kong. Never made a shitty movie. Yeah, we um, get it. We get it. We get it. It's fine. But it, I mean, it's very interesting. It's a film that, if it had been finished, you'd watch it and go, "Yeah, I can see this guy's got talent. I can see there's, you know, something Roll to come time. from this guy." Uh, but yeah, if if you're interested in Tarantino, I highly recommend watching it just as a, an artifact of his career. Yeah. Hmm. His career was sort of famously he's he was a film nerd who worked in a like video store. Yeah, and. Sort of in the in the early nineties when nerds who worked in video stores were suddenly able to make films and there's independent movement like Kevin Smith, like Richard Linklater, and that smaller production companies were kind of going, "Ooh, this has got potential," and all these things that were happening was a very exciting time. And Tarantino was one of the ones that rose to the top for, for reasons of talent. Yeah, uh, but obviously it's all same as Kevin Smith. There's a bit of luck in there that you're in the right place, oh, right absolutely, time. Absolutely, yeah. But, but, but definitely um, the talent has risen to the top there. My problem with Tarantino as I'm watching it again is that I do feel like I'm watching someone copy things he's seen. Yeah, yeah, um, and copy them in an appropriate way, mostly, and, and and it feels like, but it feels like, oh, I like that, so I'm going to do it rather than what can I do to make this scene work. True. This? It's impossible to not kind of hint at where I'm going with this. That's something I think he's guilty of in his earlier films. I think he's a lot... I think he's kind of learned how to make use of things and homage as he's gone on. But I agree. Well, what do you mean by earlier films? Because I'm The ones we're talking I'm, about in this uh See, episode. I don't know. I think this feels much and more... I, th- I think it arguably gets yeah. worse uh, as we move into the second episode we'll be talking about. But I, I... Well, yeah, I mean, Kill Bill and <laughs> yeah. I think is just <laughs> I, complete. But I think that's him being given a budget to play with and then he kind of almost gets it out yeah. of the system, frankly. Yeah, um, so, yeah, in Reservoir Dogs, that is not pedestrian directing. That is not right. I need to show this, I'll put the camera at it. It's there is some very interesting directing oh, yeah. choices there, but obviously limited with that low budget style. You're not going to have a crane shot. You're not going to have a. Um, mm. you know, there's not even any tracking shots, is it? It's all kind of like handheld stuff, but definitely directorial flair there. Oh yeah, um, yes. So 
I mean, Reservoir Dogs, it's, it's often pointed to as one of Tarantino's best films, one of his masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So this was the first time I've gone back to it in probably 15 years. It was very interesting to do so. I wasn't sure if I was going to come away thinking, yeah, amazing, uh, or I hate that. I think, I mean, my notes are probably going to make it quite obvious, but uh, I'm just going to go into them. So, I mean, my, my, my first note, painfully Tarantino-y opening. Yes. So it opens on them, <laughs> them talking about, it's them just sat around the dinner table in the diner, isn't it? The iconic scene. And he's talking about um, Madonna's like a virgin. This whole scene just feels like a parody of Tarantino. It, it's it's. <laughs> I think it's never more obvious than it is here. Well, that this the man is, is that's with the context of his career. This is the first thing you've ever seen from him. Yeah, and like I say, I, I think it's, e- it's easy to see how in the context of 1992, this was quite refreshing and appealed to people. I also think it's um, this film's guilty of complete and utter tangents uh, that don't yes. add anything to the characterization. It's, I've just literally just put as my first note of that from that very scene is just mindless chatter. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're, we're... well, okay, let me let me jump in and defend here because this is going to be a recurring theme of Reservoir Dogs, I believe. Uh, me defending it because I love Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> and having watched it again just the other day for the first time in many years, I was a bit like, okay, I'm really interested to go back to these early films mm. that I haven't seen for years, see if they hold up. Yeah, this one really held up for me. But that opening scene does a lot to set character. It sets the tone of the piece. I think it does achieve a great purpose. I, I don't think it establishes any real character. Other than, I do agree with Alan there. I do. Like, it's, it, it sets uh, the tone. And it's, just, and it's but... just enough. It doesn't drag on too long. Um, I think it's shot in such a way that it's not boring, which when mm. you've got eight yeah. people or whatever around a table, that's a difficult thing to shoot. Mm-hmm. And it... Although it's largely irrelevant to the story, um, it works. It's the same way Jules and Vincent talking about what Burger's called in Amsterdam. It, you know, it's, it just builds character. I, well, that's it. I think, I mean, not to jump ahead, I, I think Pulp Fiction does the same thing, but it really does develop the character and you get a sense for their backstory and who they are and it does add to the journey they're going through. In Reservoir Dogs, to me, I, I never feel like I do get a massively good sense of who any of them are, other than, oh, that one's clearly Tarantino. Oh, and that one was also clearly written to be Tarantino, but then Steve Buscemi <laughs> agreed yeah. to do it, so they're just the same character. Basically, I think that one of the major reasons I like Reservoir Dogs is that it, it really hit... It, no, it really hits all my buttons. No, I don't find it slow and boring at all. Nothing happens? No, that's not true at all. I don't think that's a fair... <laughs> Reservoir Dogs to me feels like Act One of a story that never gets going. It just never quite. There, there's stuff in there I like, but it's just so drawn out. It, it's. I love that Tim Roth's dying throughout the film. I think that's great. But the scene with him and the tax, no, uh, the getaway car on the way to the warehouse. It just it mm-hmm. goes on so long, and it's like we get it. Mm. We get it. We get your dynamic. We get he's dying. Next scene, yeah. and there's so many scenes where they just outstay their welcome. The whole flashback with Tim Roth, and it's like I don't really, I don't Need care this. <laughs> about this character enough to know that this well, was how he came to be here. Oh yeah, I know another good example as well when uh, Chris Penn and Michael Madsen are fighting. Yeah, and it's just like all right, we get it. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a homoerotic tension here. Move on. <laughs> there's so much of that in this film, and I, I think scenes where they just go off on one. For I some... weirdly didn't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> pop culture conversation just exacerbate it 
Um, okay, yeah, I take your point. I must admit, watching this film, I, ne- I don't feel it's too long, and and I and you know, you're saying that like because I like that sort of thing. I don't think I don't think this is slow and plodding, but I like. Yeah, that. it's, it's not it plodding. Is. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying it's. it's not, a, I'm not it, saying it's a bad thing. Yeah, like, I, I was just. I was making fun of your taste more than anything. That's right. <laughs> I, no, this is, but, this is but, a film. I was very happy to sit down and go through it for the first time in forever, and I probably will revisit this film at some point in the future. It was, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't awful. I mean, it wasn't even bad. No. It's just I. I really don't think it's as good as people make out. So I'm. I'm. That's the thing. Whenever something's held up high, you, you have to sort of like push it down, don't you? Yeah. Okay. So, but basically, the like the the whole setup, like a, a small group of characters that are all trapped together for some reason. That, that's p- perfect for me. And I, I. I think. I mean, I can't really remember that far back, but I think Reservoir Dogs is one of those films that made me enjoy film and made made me get okay. into film. Mm-hmm. Because it it just seems for whatever reason it, it it picks up on things that I like. I like films that could work as plays. I think generally yeah. is a kind of a good way to describe it. Yeah, and I think yeah. Reservoir Dogs would work as a play. It, oh yeah, definitely. Fact, 100% I would, yeah. I think I think if you took out all those flashback scenes and you just had the scenes, just did a cut of the film that was just the scenes in in the warehouse. It opens better. with. <laughs> It opens with Harvey Keitel pulling Tim Roth into the warehouse and it ends with the Mexican standoff. I think I'd really like that. It'd be like a 50-minute film or something. Yeah. And I bet it would work really well. They'd have all this information that you don't quite know. Yeah. And it, and obviously they use that in the film. You never see the heist properly, but you they tell they're telling stories about it. Oh, Mr. Mr. Blonde was shooting people. I really I was I was genuinely after I watched it, I thought, I'm gonna watch this again and just skip those bits which i didn't actually do but i'd like to do it but i want i, I kind of want to leave, leave a bit more time yeah so that it wasn't so fresh Yeah, perhaps it does need more of a confusion spin on it than it does it does kind of like guide you through it of being like this is this person this is why they're doing this this is this person like obviously you, you still need a have- fan edit of it where it just cuts to a card that says missing real at several points <laughs> <laughs> uh one thing i wanted to mention because it does sort of come throughout is um earlier works i can't really vouch for like later on i mean i have seen like his later films but it is more so these older ones that i've gone back and watched um but is his uh obsession with distorting time or chopping time yeah up? um this this mm. is far more prevalent in his early work and again to me here it screams of filmmaker early into their career trying to mm-hmm. make something a bit more interesting than it otherwise would be i mean to be yeah. fair he does this in the hateful eight i get i don't want to get too far ahead i, I think it's become a lot more just organic basically yes. in his later yeah. work and a lot more just an example of good writing whereas here it feels very choppy is what i was thinking like are we um are we able to move on to the the scene the the big famous one the scene yeah sure well, which scene are you talking about? The end? The famous scene. The, <laughs> the ear scene. It's all famous. is great. Yeah, the, the scene. <laughs> oh, torture scene, yeah. Like, reading about it, th- this was deemed to be, like, shocking when this came out. I was going to ask you about this as well, because, it, yeah, the, there seems to be this thing about, so specifically Reservoir Dogs, that it was this horrific violence, yeah. and it was, yeah. And you watch True you watch true Romance and Natural Born Killers, and it makes more sense, but with this... Weirdly, at this point, I, I put like in this scene that there was a graphic reveal without being too graphic because well, yeah, you yes. never actually see it. It was the old cutaway psycho shower scene trip because I guess mm. budgetary reasons. But yeah, well, I think it's really nicely done. I think it, it works. It's, it's, yeah, it really it's very menacing and scary, 
without being just gory for its own sake. I really sat up to pay attention when this scene started to happen, and I don't know, maybe it's lost impact because it's been so heavily parodied, but what really mm-hmm. struck me was the the bit I found the most interesting and exciting in the scene is um, the bit where he walks out and goes to his car and grabs the... Um, mm. The, the bottle of petrol and the music sort of shuts up in the background and then walks back and it's yeah, all yeah. one take. I thought that was really interesting like stuff. You never see that bit referred to or parodied or anything. It's just the guy Man. dancing around the chair and I, I don't really know what yeah. it is about that that people connect with. It, it, is it, it just nice the juxtaposition of, that... of, of that song and violence and that's somehow menacing? Because if that's all it is, I, I've seen films from the 60s that did that. Saturday night and Sunday morning has a, a, a fantastic scene where this guy beats the shit out of another guy outside a carnival. And... Well, Clockwork Orange, you know, your favourite is yeah. a, an obvious example, isn't it? Yeah. But you, like you say, we, we follow uh, Mr. Blonde out to the car. That's because we as an audience are then with Mr. Blonde. We're participating in this activity rather yes. than holding on Marvin, is it? The the policeman, in, and suffering, and we go, okay, we sympathise with his suffering. We're, we're with Mr. Blonde, and we're, we're with him. We're unintentionally on his side now. I don't know where Quentin Tarantino saw it and stole it from, but, you know, it's a good, good idea. Yeah, uh, that's Reservoir Dog. Should we, should we rate it and move on? Yeah. I think it's an incredibly overrated film, personally. I think it's a very messy film. There's a lot of um, merit to it. There's a lot of clear talent behind it but i don't think it really does hold up as a, a piece of work in its own regard so for me it's a six out of ten a six Oof. well Ooh. i was gonna be a bit more generous than that and give it around a well like seven at least i'd say i don't know if we we're going like seven point whatnot like but uh yeah, you gotta go seven or eight I'm gonna go for a seven then with Reservoir Dogs. Like it's a- well, I really like this film, and it, it it does definitely, for whatever reason, pushes my personal buttons. Um, but anyway, the point is, it's ten out of ten for me. Ooh, Ooh. ten out of ten. Have you wow. ever given a ten before, Alan? Oh, <laughs> yeah, we've done Alien as well. But yeah, genuinely, this would probably be in my top ten favorite films. Really? Um, and not just not just that I like it personally; it inspires me. It feels like. You know, I could probably make a film like that. It, it, it feels like it, it's it's more aspirational as well. I, I like low-budget stuff. I like independent films. I'm much more forgiving of things in, in them. I get the impression it's all downhill from here for you. Whereas for me, it's going to be <laughs> You may well get that impression. Yeah, mine's <laughs> going gonna, gonna to go higher than uh, this more likely. <laughs> Uh, shall we move on to True Romance, which was a film I yeah. believe he written before Reservoir Dogs, but... Um, sold and went into production and everything as a result of the success he had with Reservoir Dogs. That's something that often happens in Hollywood if, you, if you're if you a writer on the up and up and then you have a big success, all these producers go, oh, hang on, didn't we buy something by that writer a few years ago? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, uh, get it made. Get it made. True Romance is another one like Reservoir Dogs where a lot of people will go best thing Tarantino ever did. And they're wrong. They? But yeah, they're yeah, yeah. wrong. <laughs> Loads of people point to it as like, the yeah, I'm going to come uh, clear with this. And so I've never actually seen True Romance. So where where does this uh, fall on the scale of Tarantino films then in, in the ones that we're discussing like not I don't I don't need the uh, the rating but like generally where where it's, are we It's arguably the most Tarantino-y film ever made even though he didn't direct it. In terms of script, yeah, the character the central character is sort of a Tarantino 
like fantasy. Yeah, I think he himself <laughs> said that it's like the most personal film he's ever made. Um, yeah. There's a lot about it that just doesn't work for me. Um, mm-hmm. I do like it, don't get me wrong, but basically uh, Harvey Weinstein early on, I, I, I say I hate to be siding with him, Harvey Weinstein early <laughs> on said that they were wrong to cast uh, an attractive, good-looking guy such as Christian Slater in the lead, and it needed to be a bit someone a bit more odd, and he suggested Steve Buscemi. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I think the higher-up producers on the film basically had him fired and were like, piss off, don't know what you're talking about, he's a, he's a lead, you need to be sexy. And it's like, no, I look at this now and I think, yeah, Steve Buscemi would have been way better because you don't really know what level this pi- this film is pitched at. You don't know if you're meant to be on Clarence's side or if you're meant to think he's this creepy, autistic guy who doesn't know how to interact with people and gets lucky one mm. day. Because this is the thing, it's so clearly a Tarantino, Mary Sue character. It's this guy who works in a comic book shop rather than a video rental store and goes off on rants and raves about Elvis and the Beatles and stuff rather than the films he's watched. But like the the, the broad strokes of the plot, Dan, are he, he goes to his it's his birthday, so he goes to watch like a marathon of Kung Fu movies in the cinema on his own. You can tell this is a, a Tarantino film because it's a world where there's a cinema in Detroit playing a triple bill of fucking 20-year-old <laughs> and an attractive young woman just goes there on her own, which obviously, as it turned out, was a ploy. But yeah. yeah, this attractive young woman shows up, gets talking to him. They have this whirlwind romance. Uh, it soon- he, for some reason, believes that she's actually gone there to watch kung yeah. fu films. Like uh, he do. Like, he, <laughs> uh, basically, it turns out that she is an escort that was hired by his friend, and his friends sort of set it up like, you go there, Clarence, he's lonely and a loser and he never gets laid, so you go and pretend to be interested in him and I'll I'll pay you for it. Which is why it's a bit of a problem that it's Christian yeah. Slater. Yeah. Because it, it's not believable. <laughs> well, because he's not only a sexy man, but he's a very yeah. charismatic, charming man. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and he does play it like he's a bit of a weirdo who likes to hang around in comic book stores and that sort of thing, but not... But it comes across like he's uh, the male equivalent of a kind of manic pixie dream girl. He comes across as, yeah. hey, this guy yeah. is a bit eccentric and that's cool because he's confident and he knows what he's doing. It doesn't play in the way I think it's intended, which is, oh, he's a bit creepy, this guy. I had a similar birthday this year, guys. I, I totally related to this <laughs> start. I went to see Ready Player One on my own, had an ice cream. An advanced screening. <laughs> no, no sexy woman came and started talking to me through it. <laughs> well, uh, my, I mean, I didn't really like this film. I'll oh, put really? That out there. I thought uh, you were going to no. be one of the people who really does like this one, and I was going to be the guy no. who got to rally against it. But I guess I'm going to have to switch gears and defend it. Am I fine? <laughs> it's just bullshit. The the beginning of the story. Is total nonsense. It's like this kind of yeah. instant love story that they sum up in ten minutes so that we can get on with the plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hate it because again, they basically fall in love like like that. Yeah. It, immediately after they get married, there's this little scene where suddenly it's weird and tense, and it's like the end of the graduate, and it's like, um, oh, what have we done? <laughs> but then it immediately just goes into the next thing where he decides he has to go and kill her pimp. Yeah. Um, to get her free. That that is the natural progression. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and again, like I say, there's a real undercurrent more than any of other any other Tarantino film. There there is a weird undercurrent of sexism throughout this film. There's a lot yeah. of weird racial stuff. The pimp 
is part of that for me. Like, I do quite enjoy the character. It's a fantastic performance. <laughs> but it was so clearly written as, oh, that you know what, this character's such a stereotype, this is offensive. Well, let's make him white, and then it's alright. Okay. <laughs> well, I, it's Gary Oldman I, I like... <laughs> doing a weird, like, no, yeah, it is, isn't it? Gary Oldman doing a weird, um, like, impression of a black yeah. man. <laughs> that... See that that sounds awkward to me. <laughs> like, Let's see, we're sitting down here, ready to negotiate. <laughs> You've already given up your shit. I'm still a mystery to you, but I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. See if I ask if you want some dinner, and you grab the egg roll and start to try down. I said to myself, this motherfucker, he's carrying on like he ain't got a care in the world, and who knows? Maybe he don't. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh, it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite. It's like there's parts not. It is one of the best bits of the film, definitely. It's a fant- It's just classic Gary Oldman just going full on. It's the sort of thing that not many actors could have, could pull off. The, it, it makes him weirder. It makes him a kind of a weirder character that he's white uh, in this black world and in this in this you know he's living as if he's you know this kind of classic black stereotype. I think th- this film's very messy. It's got a lot of weird little tangents. He's one of which. It, it feels like he should have been the primary antagonist throughout, really. Yeah, but he's yeah, killed yeah. off very Like he comes soon, back at the end and get him back or something. And, yeah. But obviously it's it sets up the main focus of the plot because the guy's got a shitload of cocaine that Christian Slater's like, oh, I love that. Uh, well, he, no, he steals it accidentally. Yeah. Um, but then I was they... going to say, is Christian Slater's character even about cocaine from what you've described like it doesn't no no it's it's, she's like well we can sell this and start a new life but this is when it kicks gear into tarantino's other mode which is the sort of insider hollywood um (laughs) kind of film i mean basically they they run off with the cocaine and they go to see his dad briefly he's got this estranged father uh at which point the film stops dead for a few scenes but and initially it's kind of like what is all this but it, it does kind of pay off and add a bit of gravitas but again it just feels like a bit of a messy tangent i don't know what tarantino's relationship with his dad's like but i mean it, again it feels very i don't know it's weird like the dad kisses her at one point and they keep talking about how she tastes like a peach and it, that's a sort of weird <laughs> underlying misogynist like undertones that I think were probably just more mm-hmm. prevalent in the 90s. Because that's it. there's a lot of stuff like that in this film and characters talking about black people and so on. And and it's like, this guy, like these are meant to be the heroes of this film. They're not... I don't think we're meant to think, oh, that, that's a bit of a twatty thing to say. But And I mean, it's just the whole thing's very messy, but I think it's quite entertaining and it's got uh, good ideas in it. Uh, Brad Pitt plays this guy's roommate in L.A., uh, or towards LA, and that's that's one of the good, one of the great Brad Pitt performances, if you ask me. You seen them? Mm-hmm. They stay in here? No, they're staying at the Safari Motor Motel Inn. Safari Motel. How do you know that? I mean, have you been over there? No. Well, they were here, and they said that they were going to go there, and they went. Hey, you want to watch some TV or something? They might be back here. No, no, thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right, you take care. I might be back. Yeah. Okay, be cool. You condescend me, man. I'll fucking kill you, man. The, 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 my major problem with this film is that the, the beginning is really shit. 
It doesn't it doesn't set up these characters well at all. Um the ending is really shit because it's just a nonsense bloodbath. Yeah. The middle bit I found fairly engaging. It was sort of a bit of plot, a bit of story. I could see them going from one thing to the next. Yeah. Not that it was a particularly great, uh, but I was okay with that. And then my main problem with it was that the the main character, Christian Slater's character, is just so completely unlikable. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a murderer just straight up decides he's going to murder someone and does so. Um, and the fact that she still likes him, the fact that he sort of shouts at her very aggressively until she says, I love you, mm. that sort of thing. It well, is a really creepy, horrible person. And I, don't I know agree. We, 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 spoke, we spoke about how Tarantino did not come across very well as a young man. This character is clearly him written on the screen and and it's surprising how little tony scott cleaned him up and made him into a more likable <laughs> character because it, it yeah it's, it's almost like he went the other way and he was like okay i want you to actually study tarantino uh christian slater and really get <laughs> into the skin of him i don't think tony scott's a particularly amazing director he doesn't do anything interesting with this uh, and the ending is just it's straight out of John Woo. It's it's like watching a Hong Kong film, mm. which I'm sure that was what was in Tarantino's head. But it, it, it's there's a few nice character moments, like with yeah. the, with the the character who's connecting them to the producer, and they go on the roller coaster and all that. It's like that's quite a neat, neat mm. little idea to make that a bit more engaging. And I love the producer's PA as well. I think he's a great. Uh, great yeah, performance, great little character. Just this sort of slimy, sniveling guy. Um, it's very broad, and Michael Rappaport just doesn't really add anything. I'm not really sure why his character's there at all. Yeah, he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. He, 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 but I think it's all right, and I certainly think it's an improvement from Reservoir Dogs, personally. <sighs> so for me, it's a seven out of ten. <laughs> well, I give it a six. That's yeah, fair. Which I think is very fair. I'll, I'll give it a six point five. I've not seen it, <laughs> and fuck you, not allowing allowing your point fives or point twos or whatnot. I think that's fair. You know, I think that's about right. We didn't we didn't mention that Christopher Walken comes in and steals. Oh yeah, the there's a lot of Tarantino regulars in this one. Samuel L. Jackson's got a yeah. tiny little role. Crackhead L. Jackson on. turns up. It's definitely a. It seems like it's a building block film. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Paving the way for, as you said earlier, great greater things. Okay, so I mean, this is this is this is why we're here now, having this discussion. Uh, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, Pulp Fiction is something we could do an episode on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna have to limit ourselves a little bit, but hopefully, there's plenty to talk about. Um, um, Dan, you you didn't really say much about True Romance because you haven't seen it. So why don't you lead us into Pulp Fiction? <laughs> all right. Well, the first, uh, I'm gonna. Again, I was—I got a bit obsessed with uh, talking about the distortion of time in it. The first, literally, the first <laughs> thing that I wrote was just uh, uh, that it's uh, sort of like a film jigsaw puzzle. And I don't think we'd really had this before. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a bit overstated. When I was watching it again just recently, like I say, I haven't seen it for years. I just watched it last week. Mm-hmm. It, it's not—it's not complicated. It's like there's essentially two stories with some tangents you know you got you got Jules and Vincent and then Bruce Willis if you watch the film in chronological order do you think that takes anything away from Pulp Fiction of the way it is the way the story is told because we're saying it's not that complicated but Um, obviously you have to be actually watching it in order for it to not be complicated you could. Th- this is a film that could be edited anyway you could end on Bruce Willis riding off into the sunset and it would be as Satisfying, iconic. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, uh, what my my thoughts about this were, and this is kind of quite a broad point, but I'll make it now anyway. I could have, I think I would prefer this film and could have done this film if it was uh, like a day in the life of Jules and Vincent and you see these two hitmen and you see what they're doing. The whole Bruce Willis story, that whole storyline, take it out. I, I don't need that. And I'd have an hour and a half film with these two characters and you see them going through things and then maybe the Uma Thurman storyline is a flashback or it's like, oh, Vincent decides to tell Jules the story about when he took out the boss's wife and then we flash back, perhaps. And then you could have something else with Jules where he has a flashback or something if you want to uh, increase the runtime or whatever. But basically just seeing them go through this day in chronological order would have been perfectly good for me and I would have liked that film. Not to say I didn't like this film, but I think I but would have worked. So did, so did you not enjoy the storyline of Bruce Willis? Did you not find that like well interesting or captivating like in the same way? I didn't dislike it. I think it's very different style to the other one. And I also think they're yeah. not connected at all. Obviously, Marcellus Wallace is the connection, but I don't think they're connected in any way, uh, story-wise. And I think that's deliberate choice. He's telling like Pulp Fiction, a couple of different stories here, there, here, there. But... Mm-hmm. That's two separate films, and it could have worked as two separate films. I would have liked one more than the other, but there you go. I've always felt like it did feel very detached, actually. I agree with you there, that subplot. Um, or that strand, I suppose, would be more accurate. It's like the first time Bruce Willis pops up. I, I'm always like, oh yeah, I forgot about him being in this film. Th- this happening. <laughs> yeah, I forgot this whole bit's in it. But having said that, I really enjoy his story, and I like it. I think there's probably a pretty strong argument for chopping any of the storylines out of the film just to kind of make everything run a bit smoother. I think Samuel L. Jackson's the only one who's cemented in place and couldn't possibly be removed. But, but this but this is what I mean. I don't think I think it's two I think there's two stories here. I think you've got Jules and Vincent. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. and Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer's storyline is a part of that. Yeah. The Uma yeah. Thurman storyline is a part of that. Yeah. And then you've got the uh, Butch, the uh, the boxer, and his storyline. It's two storylines yeah, no, that right. are kind of interwoven. But that that's why I basically I would have liked, oh, Jules and Vincent have this really weird day. And it's like this, this, this thing happens that Jules thinks is a miracle and it affects him. And then that when something else really bad happens where they get held up in the diner, that affects the way he's behaved. Yeah, and that's yeah. what exactly what we see. I mean, that is what happens. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying that you take Butch out of that storyline and it would have just flowed smoothly no problem okay so if you take butch out of that though then how and i understand obviously that there are other parts of the film where this character i'm about to say does develop but one of the big things in butcher's story is showing and exposing marcellus wallace for something more than just being this crime lord and without without that story where where do we get that development from where do we get that character growth for the for... I don't know about that in in Jules and Vincent's story he can just be the the sort of nebulous crime lord we never yeah. even see his face they're doing mm-hmm. some sort of weird package for him like we, we don't need to know he's just he's the power I was going to say I don't think it adds anything to their story that we do know more about him honestly cuz to be I don't think we know any more about him all we see of him is that if someone does bad by him he'll fuck them up and we knew that anyway. No, yeah, true. We also yeah, see, you, no, you, we 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 learn that there's a um, there's some semblance of honor, I guess you'd call it, to his character. The the way that Bruce Willis and he mm-hmm. kind of yeah, he does right by Bruce Willis as he comes yeah. to terms with one another after going through an ordeal together. I, I think that does yeah. develop him a bit, but I don't think it develops him in a way that has any impact on the other storylines. The, the other guys, yeah. No, right. 
I mean, th- th- this is this. I, for me, you were talking about with Reservoir Dogs being a film that you came to and got you into film and so on. I think this was for me. I, I think certainly nowadays, most most boys get to age fifteen and then watch Pulp Fiction and start quoting bad motherfucker this and blah yeah. blah, blah and, yeah. and uh yeah. you know I, I was no exception to that and it was again it was one of these early films i watched when i was getting into cinema that really made me sit up and think yeah no films are pretty cool yeah i was the same yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we think of tarantino as being particularly uh, skilled in a certain type of dialogue this is probably the best yeah. example of that yeah. and um something he's kind of let go a little bit later on uh, not for a bad reason but like he's writing dialogue that's suitable for the position but in this like the opening scene of reservoir dogs it's like this is classic tarantino dialogue mm-hmm. yeah v- uh, jules and uh, vincent chatting away all that and and the difference for me here is that I really do think each instance of it here does develop the character, perhaps more specifically the dynamic and relationship between the characters. Um, in in Reservoir Dogs, helps... it's always more of a monologue when you get these tangents and people talking about stuff. In True Romance, it's always more of a monologue. It's, oh, hasn't Clarence got an interesting opinion? In Pulp Fiction, it's... Look at the interplay between these two. It's, you know, John Travolta's going on about McDonald's, but then Samuel L. Jackson's, you know, listening to him and they'll, and they'll get the hell out and what? And you you get a real sense for who they are. Um, it doesn't seem like Uma throwaway Thurman. nonsense. Yeah, that's... Uma Thurman and him are bonding over this stuff and you get a real sense for their chemistry together because of it. So I think the difference and why it works for me here is that it. I really think it does um, complement the story in a way that, isn't the case for me with Reservoir Dogs. Do you do you um do you know what they call a Big Mac in China, Dan? Go on, saw so what they call a Big Mac in China. Uh, I, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Ju Wu Ba, which <laughs> apparently literally translates as giant, not tyrant. <laughs> good. Very good. Okay. <laughs> do you do you know what they call a Big Mac in India, Alan? <laughs> uh. Uh, well, uh, veggie mac because they don't eat beef. <laughs> You're on the right lines. Uh, apparently, it's called the Maharaja Mac, and it's made with chicken. It is called the Maharaja Mac. I've <laughs> eaten it. It is spicy, and uh, you will spend a lot of time on the toilet after eating it. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> my my first note was basically in one scene in the, in the opening scene, or really in the scene where they confront the three young men in the uh, in the apartment in the apartment that scene that scene invents samuel jackson samuel jackson as the sort of samuel jackson persona yeah. that we all know and love mm-hmm. rather than necessarily him actually as a person just in that one simple scene he's reciting bible verse it's just boom he's there uh, and you know that you know that bible verse scene yeah that was written for Harvey Keitel's character in From Dust Till Dawn, and the script sat on a <laughs> shelf so long that Tarantino was like, "I'm just going to have that for my own film over here, Pulp Fiction." Would it would it have had the bit where he said, "Oh, this is some crazy shit I I say before I kill someone"? Uh, probably not, because <laughs> Harvey Keitel's character didn't really do. But that that Bible <laughs> that Bible passage is like predominantly bullshit. Um, the first half of it's real, and then it kind of turns into some riff on a 1976 karate movie. What surprise! So it's it's not actually, <laughs> yeah, it's just Tarantino just yeah being Tarantino. 
That's fair. I'm all right mm. with that. That's okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, just generally in that, um, this film for me really came alive whenever Samuel L. Jackson was on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the flip side of that is that I was less bothered when he wasn't on screen. So, you know, that's about 60% of the film. <laughs> all the Bruce Willis stuff, which I say, I'm not saying it's bad, but I just... And the Uma Thurman storyline, just when Samuel Jackson was there, it was like, yes, I'm in. I'm totally involved. I, yeah. I, I really enjoyed the interactions of Uma Thurman and John Travolta, though. I really, they're like, they're, there's some iconic scenes that those two have together yeah, yeah, in that yeah. film. That, like, yeah, don't get me wrong. I don't dislike it, but it just it's just Jackson just brings something else to it. Yeah, mm. I, um, I agree. When Samuel L. Jackson comes on, it's like, all right, this film's just turned it up to 11. Like, this is yeah. really fucking good. And the other stuff's just really good. My, I've got a big problem with the whole uh, Butch storyline. I don't know mm. if you want to go into that now, but yeah, I've got bigger problems well, with yeah, that. Well, yeah, go on. Let's, let's okay. deal with that bit. And then yeah, let's uh, open it. Well, basically, my major problem with it is that it's not a well-plotted story. Just Things just happen like randomly. And the fact that he runs into uh, Marcellus Wallace just by pure chance is, okay, that's, I'll that's accept this kind of one... Coincidence. Yeah. To make a point. That's yeah. That's... But then the whole Zed and uh, rape thing is just completely out of nowhere. It's not a really, it's not a very realistic situation. It's, it doesn't, <laughs> it, it's sort of like just, yeah. it's such a weird, like, right, what am I going to do with this? Maybe they all become vampires. Uh, that'll make sense. It's such a weird <laughs> story progression that has no meaning and has it's just a means to an end and i don't like that i think it's bad writing i think it's bad storytelling i think it's all very much action or nothing with with his storyline it's like we're either doing something big or being really quiet like i mean i i agree the film takes some weird left turns um i don't think that's a bad thing i think that's kind of part of the point of the film is that it is just weird shit happens and but that, that's what I mean. Him him just driving away and Marcellus Wallace happens to be there is a coincidence that I can go with. But then just this new characters that are just, what, what's going on here? Oh, yeah, they've got a gimp in the basement. What? It doesn't make any sense. There's no reason behind any of it. Mm-hmm. A coincidence that gets you into trouble is fine. A coincidence that gets you out of trouble is bad writing. And I, I don't, with the exception of perhaps as we say, um, John Travolta's death scene, there aren't any coincidences that really massively help the characters. Bruce Willis Mm -hmm. and Thingy, it's completely coincidental they stumble into that uh, bizarre sex dungeon, but then that gets them into further trouble, and it's uh, Bruce Willis's character and his decisions that he makes that gets him out of that and manages to rescue himself and make amends with the other guy. So you know, it's all about closure for Butch, isn't it? That's the entire reason that scene yeah, exists. I, I think it's perfectly fine, personally. I I have no problem with a, a situation where they get themselves into trouble and Bruce Willis actually helps him and therefore they find some sort of peace. The way that it's done is just weird. No, and I think it's, it's not... what you just said. I think he he finds some common ground with this guy that he's wronged. But if they'd, if they'd just been in a fight and they'd stumbled into, say, for example... Uh, rival gang territory of Marcellus Wallace, and so they capture them, mm-hmm. and they're going to kill Marcellus Wallace because he's a. Then rival. it would be a much more boring film. 
less interesting. Well, why? why? No, because he's still under the same threat, and then Bruce Willis escapes. Because gangs, I've seen a million films about gangs. I've never seen a film about a weird sex dungeon that kidnaps people. Well, that's because <laughs> it doesn't exist, and it's not a real thing, and it doesn't make sense. Yeah, but what if it did? Well, make a film about that then, but don't just drop it in a film that's about other things. The bit for me that really feels like what is going on is when Marvin gets shot in the head. Um, Marvin, of course, played by Phil Lamar in a rare live-action yeah. role. Phil Lamar does voices on Futurama <laughs> and other cartoons. Sweet gorilla of Manila! Yeah, it does. I just feel like that whole sequence should have come a lot earlier in the film. It, it comes so late in the film, but it's so kind of comparatively low stakes compared to some of what we've seen, and silly, that yeah. it just doesn't quite fit there for me, personally. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it's one of the most iconic bits in the film. It's obviously where Tarantino crowbars himself in, and it's one of the more cringy yeah. <laughs> bits of acting he's ever done as Jimmy. I know what my wife buys, Jules. My wife buys shit. <laughs> um, but I like, I do like the dynamic between him and, him and Samuel Jackson there, the way that Samuel Jackson's playing that character dynamic. It's like, okay, he's my friend, but I can't, like, I realise what I'm pushing yeah. here. I also... And then you've got John Travolta's character who's just, like, being an arsehole about it. It's like... Do you mind? He's we've literally brought a corpse into his house. Do you want to just play play along here? <laughs> yeah, this scene where you know you got Harvey Keitel comes in quite an iconic, like such an iconic scene that I saw an advert recently for insurance with this. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, what you doing, Wolf? Yeah. You were on your way to Marsh's hen party when you took a hit from a couple of wise guys. Nightmare. Call Direct Line. They'll arrange a higher car. Oh, hey, what about us? Are you with Direct Line? No. Then on your bike, Buster. Like, he comes in and he's like, pretty please, buy fucking insurance. Uh, you know, he's like doing that. It's like, it's sad, really, but, you know. I mean, look, he's not above cleaning up corpses and brain matter. He's never been doing particularly high-class work, so. <laughs> you know what I realised this time watching the film, and I'd never realised this before, which is probably a good indication of how long it's been since I watched the film and the age I was when I first watched this. Go on. That's go Steve Buscemi on. in the diner scene serving them. <laughs> I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's so obviously yeah. him, but like. And a great. That is, he brings so much to such a small part because it's such a, a, a waiter who's not just a waiter, but in a character yeah, waiter. You've Holly, got to really sell that. Maybe. And he just cannot be arsed. He's just blatantly a waiter going, yeah, what do you want? All right, fuck <laughs> off. And when, But because he's in character doing it, it's, it makes it even more obvious. I really like that. I like that it just brought something yeah. to it in such a small part. Yeah, that is nice. Well, the Uma Thurman storyline is, you know, John Travolta's character has to take her out and just keep her occupied while the, the her husband's away. Yeah. Really nice character dynamics between them is not, a lot happens, and the sort of plot all comes right at the end, where after she accidentally snorts heroin. Yeah. Um, John Travolta plays a sort of spaced-out junkie quite well. Why do you think that is? <laughs> <laughs> um, should we talk about John Travolta quickly? Because this was a, a, a renaissance of his career. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's the he's the one that people point to every time Tarantino casts a, uh, a Mike Myers or a <laughs> Kurt Russell or whoever. It's always... Oh yeah. look, he's doing a John Travolta, but and and this, I, I don't think John Travolta's particularly great in this. Yeah, I know? think he was just yeah. cast in a cool role, and everyone. Yeah, it. it's a great role. I I really enjoy him in this film, and this really relaunched his career fully for a good ten years. Like he got a, a decade out of this, and then it sort of went wrong again. But you know, you know, Tarantino offered him. 
Tarantino offered him uh, the lead in From Dust Till Dawn. He basically said, "Look, I'm either I'm going to make one of these two scripts I've written. Which one do you want?" And he was like, "Well, let's do the proper film." Yeah, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Fair. Probably probably for the best that he did that. I think. Yeah. I think it's interesting yeah. to imagine a world in which he chose the other one. I think John Travolta would have gone on to be one of those comic book convention signing autograph B movie kings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but on the other side. George Clooney as Vincent Vega probably would have worked really oh, well. Oh man, that would have been phenomenally uh, although, cool. Maybe, maybe him and Samuel Jackson are sort of too much the same kind of cool for that to quite work. Yeah, you know what? It, it might be too. It'd be so cool that it would just like come out yeah. the other side, and it just wouldn't work. <laughs> too much cool. Yeah, yeah. What else? Uh, Uma Thurman. This, uh, yeah, an- another one who's kind of this really brought her up into mainstream a bit well, more. Well, her and yeah. her and Tarantino became very close, you know, collaborators mm. uh, until yeah. stuff will go into and Kill Bill kind of ruined it, and they're not really on the best of terms anymore. But the major thing we haven't talked about is where Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer are playing this weird couple who hold up. Uh, a restaurant, yeah, um, yeah, and uh, this is this gives us a, a conclusion to the okay. uh, well, essentially the uh, the jewels story. It it struck me. I only realised it on this viewing. It's really odd, but it's very clearly a different take of um, the scene at the start and then the beginning. Yeah, it is. Yeah, she says a di- completely different words. Yeah. <laughs> so what's that about? The it, it goes from the you know. Any of you motherfuckers, move and I'll motherfucking execute every last one of you. <laughs> and then it, it becomes, I'll execute every one of you motherfuckers or something. It's like... Yeah, I know. I know this is a significant that's, change in the line, isn't there? Like... That's, that's got to be a weird intentional Tarantino thing, right? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was just the nicest take from that separate angle and they fucked up. But I don't know. It just seems like a weird... Tarantino yeah, like be. wanted to create an intentional continuity error to because he saw it in a shit probably, film yeah. when he was younger and oh, I don't know. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's probably right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, the the conclu- the conclusion it and it's all about he's having a bit of a um, weird day, life crisis. Really. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, the kind of having a, a moment of. Uh, enlightenment let's say and and yeah. so it changes the way that he de- deals with it and i think it's nice it's a very good tense scene i think it's it wonderful right yeah and, and the fact that they they make it very clear that he could shoot his way out of this and basically execute these two idiots and he, he you know because he's got yeah. the gun under the table and he purposely doesn't do that and, and takes the less easy route for him uh, yeah i think it's great yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the, yeah, the less easy route—that's it. He's kind of trying to find a peaceful route. A moment of growth, in, isn't in, it? In his own way, yeah. And I, I do like it where he gives the guy his money, and John Travolta's character goes, "If you give him that money, I'm going to shoot him on principle." <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I really like that. Yeah. Which is good. But the, the beauty of that moment is, it really highlights that they are in total control here. Even though Amanda Plummer's still got the gun out and everything, they are in control of the yeah. situation. Yeah, and John Travolta's still of a mindset. Well, let's just kill these twats and walk away. I think he's the voice of the audience there. Frankly, I think Tarantino <laughs> very rightly knows that you're sat there going, "Just shoot the prick," um, <laughs> and then they they so he acknowledges it and then you know carries on explaining what he's doing, and I think it's great. 
I love this film. I think this film's fantastic. Like I, I was yeah. of all the films I had to rewatch, other than From Dust Till Dawn, which I've seen so many times. I really was um, kind of dreading this one because I've probably seen it the most out of Tarantino's filmography, and mm-hmm. it was just a bit like, oh god, again. And then I, I do this quite a lot, where I put it on, and you know, a few minutes in, I'm sold. I'm like, no, this is brilliant. Yeah, it was definitely for me. It was the whole Bruce Willis storyline. Didn't engage me as much. Not, and I not want to say that I disliked it, but that definitely what came through on this watch. I think I I totally get where you're coming from with that, and I think you've made some very valid points. But I just enjoy his subplot so much that I don't care that it yeah. doesn't really <laughs> tie in as well. So yeah, no, I, you're right. Well, the the whole thing that makes up for Butcher's story for me is um, Christopher Walken's <laughs> whole whole bit of just I just love. Like retelling that and discussing that with people, other like you know, <laughs> so like just how serious he has to talk about this guy hiding a watch up his ass for five years. Can't t- just come does it so well. Up his ass, up his ass. Welcome down the road. Yeah, no, great. One other thing I want to mention this this film it won the Palm Door, um, yes. which is somewhat controversial because it's a. It's well, such it's a, a sort of enjoyable American film. film. <laughs> yeah, because it had such mainstream success. The Palm Door is usually for like mental Taiwanese films that don't make any sense. And... Um, well, not really. I mean, the. All right, the few I've seen. <laughs> I think this is the only Palm well, Door winner to... I've seen that I've enjoyed. Well, just to put it in context, Barton Fink won it a few years ago, Coen Brothers okay. film, Wild at Heart won it. Ugh, yeah, exactly. Exactly there fucking mental bullshit <laughs> film that yeah yeah so it's kind of not the you it's not a kind of well it was also nominated for oscars and those two don't necessarily always correlate but also it's not it's this is a sort of film that loads of people went to see it appeals to uh 25 year old men and that is not a usual palm door kind of this stuff. was a a real fucking definitive game changer of cinema i mean it's it's the culmination of things leading up to it it didn't come out of nowhere but this is one of the seminal works of film like of all time in terms of cultural significance and in terms of influence on the landscape of cinema like uh, yeah i mean i'm not surprised it, it, it and i think it's a good example of how this film still had with tarantino an indie film feel to it yeah and that Tarantino could be a, the kind of American indie darling for a long time. And yeah. kind of, it didn't become that. He's gone a lot more mainstream, even though he does retain a lot of those aspects. And he does things that are not mainstream, but he maintains a mainstream audience. And uh, that's a very special skill. So, yeah, that's just a sort of an unusual bit of a sort of film history there. And I think it does say a lot about how this film was received in the fact that it was so critically claimed, but at the same time, people... Uh, and obviously, whenever anything's big, people will rally against it, and particularly for violence yeah. and drug use and all that sort of thing that was apparently a lot more important back then. Anyway, uh, should we rate it? Yes. Come on then, Alan. I know I've kind of been a bit of a voice of dissension here, but I gave it 9 out of 10. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that right. should... But I think, retrospectively, that should sort of justify what I'm saying in the sense of... Yeah, no... I, I did enjoy it, but I was like... I think this could be a second film completely, and I probably wouldn't. If you just showed me the Bruce Willis storyline film, mm. I probably wouldn't like that as much. But that Jules and Vincent story is a ten out of ten for me. Yeah, you know, that, that's kind of that really does a lot of things for me. 
And the other side of it just sort of distracts from it. I think we've got the same kind of opinion, but we're just coming to it from either side. Because, again, like if they were two separate films, the Jules and Vincent, for me, would be a 10 out of 10, but the Bruce Willis would probably be like a 9 out of 10. Um, but for me, it doesn't drag it down. But overall, for me, this is a 10. I think this is a, a truly wonderful film. So it's quite a big leap up for me from Reservoir Dogs. Daniel? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a nine. It is a leap from Reservoir Dogs. It is more captivating for me. The storyline, the dialogue for for me for me personally is more snappy, more authentic. It actually means more. We are shaking up our diminishing returns top ten leaderboard. I t- Fight Club last week, and now this. <laughs> Calvin's gonna be fuming. <laughs> um. So. Uh, Natural Born Killers then, same year, we need to mention it, but I don't really have anything to say other than I don't think it's that great, and I don't really consider it part of Tarantino's career, really, because all he has is a story credit. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I understand the script was significantly altered. Yeah, yeah, that's um, the thing. From what it, he wrote. To me, it doesn't feel like his work when you watch it. True Romance feels like his work, From Dust Till Dawn feels like his work. This one doesn't, to me. It, it, I can see... Tarantino in there. Um, but I know what you mean. Yeah, it feels yeah, very altered. But it's an interesting film in ter- from quite an arty point of view. And it's an interesting film from a filmmaking point of view. The sort of, because it's some th- there are a lot of things in there that are really yeah interesting directorial kind of flourishes that you're not going to see very often. Certainly not in a film of this... Um, it wasn't that mainstream, but you know, a film of this nature with this kind of budget. Not a particularly enjoyable film in any way, um, or, <laughs> right. or very good either. <laughs> um, I did rate it. Hang on, let me look it up before I. Well, I I've looked it up and I've given it a six out of ten on IMDb, but I think that's I think I saw it around the same time as Reservoir Dogs, and that was me sort of being too scared to give it a lower score because people <laughs> like it. So, well, I gave it a six as well. Actually, uh, I just watched it the other day. So, and and uh, Juliet Lewis is fantastic uh, in it. Uh, she's always fantastic. Um, Woody Harrelson actually is pretty good in it as well, and it was very much a deliberate kind of. It was, a, but that was a deliberate stepping away from his usual type. That was kind of the whole point of casting him. You know, he was the guy out of Cheers. He was the sitcom guy. Okay, should we move on to uh, one of the lesser known, more often forgotten Tarantino directorial efforts and three other people directorial efforts. Yeah, four rooms, which I just watched for the first time. Yeah, th- this was um, this was the one feature on this that I hadn't seen before that I watched specifically for this whole uh, series of podcast episodes we're doing. Should we start off with a little game? <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Can you name for me films in which Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez have shared director duties? Sin City. Sin City, correct. Point to Alan. Tarantino, uh, quote unquote, guest directed a, a, a scene. The Grindhouse thing, if that counts as oh, one film. Shit. Yes. Yeah, that does. That's what I was going to go for. Grindhouse, yes, of course, was made up of. You bastard, Alan! It's basically <laughs> an anthology containing Death Proof and uh, Planet Terror. Um, Spy Kids? No. <laughs> did he, did he do something on that? I mean, there, there, there's an obvious one we haven't mentioned. Well, this one that we're talking about, four yeah, rooms. Four rooms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they are two of the four directors in it. And now this is one that's quite interesting trivia that I didn't know until I read about it the other day. Uh-huh. Uh, go on then. 
the Jimmy Dimmick scenes in Pulp Fiction were directed by an uncredited Robert Rodriguez because Tarantino was busy being an actor. Ah, ah. interesting. I did not know. No, that. I didn't know that either. There you go. Okay, little bonus game. Uh, the same, but with Eli Roth instead of Robert Rodriguez. There's two of them. <laughs> what they've directed together. Tarantino and Eli Roth have both. Eli Roth them. did one of the right. trailers in the Grindhouse thing. He did. He did Thanksgiving uh, trailer for Grindhouse. That's one of these. Uh, did he direct something in Inglorious Bastards? He did. He, he directed the little <laughs> uh, Nation's Pride film that they watch within the film. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he was so there, cute. wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Well, I learned something new. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, well done. Well done with that. Um, now, let's see. So, yeah, four rooms. Uh, yeah. My first note is, what the actual fuck is this? This is not what I expected at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, okay, what were you expecting? Because all I knew about it, I just watched this for the first time the other day. I knew it was an anthology film. I've seen those sort of films before. They're always quite crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this one had a bit more of a, a real a reason to actually hang them together. It had a kind of, you know, that mm, central character a bit more. It didn't, it didn't. But, yeah. Um <laughs> This is just a lot more screwball comedy, light-hearted than I was expecting. Oh, basically. definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's what I found bizarre. It opens with a bizarre Pink Panther knockoff opening credits with Tim Roth's bellboy character uh, <laughs> animated. It is really weird, actually. Like, yeah, it's a weird film. It's just and, got a weird um, vibe to it. I've never seen Tim Roth give a bad performance before, but oh, I it is <laughs> cringy here. This is well, that, just, yeah, it's. I mean, it's because he's playing against type. It's because he's trying to do yeah. comedy and he can't do it. <laughs> it is a really weird character, and it, it feels like yeah, put a proper comedy actor into that, and it would work. Well, it was it was conceived of for Steve Buscemi, which would have worked, and for whatever reason, yeah. he didn't do it. Um, yeah, maybe he read that makes the script. More sense. Well, <laughs> well, Steve Buscemi has worked with most of these direct. I think all of these directors definitely worked with the two that we've heard of. Um, and one of the others, because <laughs> I looked him up. But um, the, the thing is, I've never really, I've never seen Tim Roth play a character that isn't just kind of himself before. I think that's why it just doesn't work here. He can't do it. Well, that's it's it. like I'm, he's I'm playing not... fucking Mr. Bean. It just, it's well, he does it. He does it very. What he seems to be doing is very Stan Laurel. Actually, is a lot of Stan Laurel stuff in there. I, I assume that's a big influence in what he's doing. But yeah, it's physical comedy, and just he's just not very good at it. He's not, <laughs> trying to stress how British he is at times, but he's and then not. Other... <laughs> but then he's, but you know, he's not the right kind of British for it as well. He's very, he's that kind of, he's down it. You know, it, it, oh, it just doesn't. Oh, and it is a weird thing. And obviously, there's four different stories with yeah. four different directors. Well, should we rattle through them really quickly? Um, segment one. Some utter load of bullshit from Alison Anders about some witches that are trying to do a spell. No idea what that was supposed to be about. What was that saying? They, they need his sperm, uh, and it's just it's just embarrassing. It's trying <laughs> so hard to to have like a director's stamp on it, and it does. But you come away thinking, well, they can't direct. Tim Roth gets raped by a witch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. He's definitely into it. Yeah, because she no, he's not into it, and then she casts a fucking hypnotic spell on him. Oh, you're right. She does actually. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't. I was thinking she just convinces him and seduces him, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's a bit weird. Madonna's in it. 
Yeah, but it's, it is a weird film. That show, I don't know what it's trying to say. I don't know what it's trying to achieve. I, I didn't know it was that difficult to make a short film. I think it's meant to be funny, and it's just embarrassing. I mean, it's not funny, so if that's what it's trying to do, it's... The second segment is a lot more serious and less screwball and weird. And I guess the plot is a bit more obviously funny. Uh, Alexandre Rockwell directs the second one, and... Uh, he goes into a room and there's this weird hostage situation, but then it might or might not be a weird sex game between a husband and wife, and you don't really know, and he's caught up in it, and he's held at gunpoint. I thought this was the best directed of the bunch, actually, in terms of the, the craftsmanship behind the camera, but it's boring. The second one? Fuck. Yeah. Um, again, I came away from it going, don't know what they were trying to say with that, I don't know what the purpose of that was. That was definitely one where I was like, I wouldn't mind watching something by this director. I bet the as an indie indie little films go, I bet they're interesting. Yeah. Whereas the first one, I was like, I don't know who this yeah. is, and I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, then segment three, Robert Rodriguez's. Uh, I don't know about you, Alan. I think this is by far the highlight of the film. By far, in a yeah. way, it's the only yeah. segment that vaguely works. The misbehaviors. Um, yeah, mm. it, this this is like a precursor to Robert Rodriguez of Spy Kids and Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Yeah. It's him directing kids being anarchic. It's ob- you know, it's not suitable. It's not a kid's film, but you can see the DNA of him that went on to want to make family films. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of unabashedly fun and silly whereas the others are just kind of trying to be yeah, kooky. I don't know what they're trying to do. It's it's contrived setup for the most ridiculous basically this this couple are like we're going out we want you to babysit the kids for us here's like a hundred dollar tip for you or whatever as long as they're like looked after yeah um and then it's just like how they can get to those two coming home and like the room's on fire and there's a dead hooker in the room and kid one of the kids is drunk and do you know what i mean it's it's just bending over backwards to how they can manufacture that but i quite like but that's that. fine because exactly. it works as a comedic yeah. construct so i thought this was all right and antonio banderas is in it as the uh dad of the kids and he's he's on typical uh comedy antonio banderas form i, I quite yeah. like him um yeah and again as a sh- it works as a short because it's just exactly. like hey we're just gonna yeah. have a bit of fun and be silly yeah. with this yeah uh, and then finally, what everyone came to see, Tarantino closes out the film. Although there's a bit of wraparound, and I, I couldn't find anything on who directed the wraparound stuff. No, I, yeah. I and I did look, because well, there's a whole bit where he phones up Kathy Griffin, who owns a hotel, and, and says, I'm done it, I'm I'm not working here anymore. And she's like, come on, just, just go see the room upstairs, because it's this big, high-powered client from Hollywood, and we need to keep him happy, mm. and then you can go, and... She convinces him to, and the 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 problem I have with this film as a whole is that none of, like there's no overarching story. None of this really goes anywhere. But anyway, segment four, Tarantino. Tarantino basically plays himself, um, <laughs> but now he's a film director. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's he's playing a film that like an up and coming new Hollywood star, you know, director writer. He's just made a film everyone loves. And he's rented out this hotel suite and all his Hollywood mates are there. There's a woman walking around in bare feet. Bruce Willis is there (laughs) for an uncredited cameo. Yeah, I mean, basically, the guy goes into the room. Tarantino's like, hey, can I offer you a tasty beverage? Uh, And he's like, yeah. uh, Well, this is the best tasty beverage in town. ah." And and then just talks at him for 20 minutes. (laughs) 
just nonsense. Yeah. I don't know, Gilligan's Island, talking about old TV, doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, probably not even scripted. They just put a camera on him. And he's yeah. <laughs> like, it, honestly, it is, it is Tarantino as himself. Like, it is just him. Mm. You know that shot. You know that shot in that episode of Gilligan's Island where uh, where so and so comes to so and so, and people like Bruce Willis is like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Just like, <laughs> oh. and it just leads to them doing this this bet, and a guy's finger gets chopped off, and then Tim Roth walks out with a load of money, and that's the end. There's no overarching plot. It's not. It's not funny. The um, the Tarantino segment. It does feel like. A director who's going, oh, we're making a short film, we'll do something a little bit fun. There's, he, he kind of plays with a lot of long shots where moving the camera, like tracking shots and stuff. Um, it feels like he's taking the opportunity to do something a little bit experimental, and but and it's very Tarantino dialogue. It feels like he bashed it out very quickly as well. It doesn't feel like he sat down yeah. and thought about it like he does with most of his films. But the writing was not particularly good in this Tarantino segment. It's 20 minutes of unrelated setup for a, a very weak punchline and that's it it's a punchline it's not a story i was surprised at how bad this film was uh i think it's shite and i think it's quite remarkable that tarantino has successfully managed to erase it from his like filmography to the extent that he has because you never see this <laughs> one mentioned it's it's really quite well hidden so what what are your uh, rankings on it? Would you say, guys? I would give it a four. Uh, overall, I, I gave it, I gave it a five. A four and a five. Yeah, that's weak. Yeah. Weak. Um, <laughs> did you know, Alan? It was originally meant to be called Five Rooms. Okay, who was the fifth? Can you guess? Richard Linklater. Spot on. Oh, <laughs> that was very impressive. Yeah, Richard Linklater was. Uh, but he's. Exactly the right generation this, with these guys. It's, it's going to be him or Kevin Smith, basically. Yeah, yeah. And Kevin Smith was still a bit not quite there at this point. So, Right, From Dusk Till Dawn? Uh, from Dusk Till Dawn, yes. Which, of all the films that Tarantino's written but not directed, this is probably the one that feels most faithful to the script. This feels, like, so close to... A Tarantino film, just in general as well. I mean, yeah. This was a film, I've always quite liked this film. I've probably watched this the most out of Tarantino's filmography, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, Because, you know, it's just, it's like, I think I watched it one year with you guys for Halloween because it was one of the kind of comedy horror films I happen to have to hand. Yeah, I do. It's just a nice, easy watch and I've, I've gone back to it again and again as a result. Therefore, I really more than anything wasn't looking to forward to going back to rewatching this one but i thought i'd better get through it and again put it on five minutes in in love with it i i yeah. forgot how much i love this film every time i watch it i think i come away appreciating it all the more because it, it, it's a weird structure people criticize that it, it's you get halfway into the film before the genre changes altogether and it becomes a vampire movie have you yeah. seen this one dan mm-hmm. i have yeah yeah i've not seen yeah. it for a little while but yeah i have seen this one and uh, people will criticise that as bad structure, but I think it's such mm. a clearly intended <laughs> rug from under your feet moment that I think it's fine, and I I think tonally the film stays the same. But that's what makes it's it a, fun as well—the fact that they can just throw that yeah, out. It's a genre comedy up until the point where the vampires show up. You know, it's got violence in it, and so tonally it doesn't really shift gears. It it just adds a supernatural element halfway through, but. Well, just as a just as an overview of my feelings is, I don't like that switch, but it's not because of the switch, and I think that's 
as a device, it's quite an interesting thing. Like, it's just like, yeah, pull the rug out from under you, boom, look, with something here, you weren't expecting that. My problem with it is that I'm really enjoying that first half of the film. Yeah. And then the second half of the film, that's it becomes fair. like, oh, we're fighty, fighty, fighty. And that's just, I'm not bothered about that. And it does it well for that sort of thing. But it's just, I think it's more of a personal taste thing. I'm just not bothered about that. For me, I think it does wonders to, pro- I think both halves of the film do wonders to prop each other up. I think the first half of the film is very good, but I think that the the fact that you know there's vampires on the way and it's going to become this silly film makes you all the more forgiving of the cliches of the genre that it falls into. It's doing very kind of cliched, these two criminal brothers on the run from the law. And because you know it's operating within a different confide, so just being that all the way through, you kind of forgive it certain things that you might not if it wasn't that all the way through. And and this is, I mean, this was a real collaboration between Tarantino and Rodriguez. Like, the two really did, you know, more than, oh, he wrote it, I directed it. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Tarantino was going to direct this film himself. It was going to be one of his films, like, through and through, in his official numbered canon. Uh, but he wanted to focus on his acting, which is why Robert Rodriguez did it. And Rod- Rodriguez in this, he, he's got he's got just the right sense of fun to yeah. make this work. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and we've been skirting around like Tar- Tarantino as an actor, and I think this is an example of why he can be a good actor. He's cast perfectly. He's playing this. Creepy... This is the high point of his acting. I don't have easily. any issues with him in this because, like you said, he does fit better in this universe. Yeah. Like... He's cast correctly. I get the impression Robert Rodriguez is directing him very well and knows yeah. which takes to use and that sort of thing. And I think he's great as this kind of unhinged brother character who is a great dynamic. I, George Clooney's uh, uh, Seth Gecko loves his brother, but his brother's a fucking mm. liability, gets him into trouble, and that plays out throughout the film. Um, and it also works on the level of like even an immoral character such as Seth Gecko sees his brother's immoral immorality as a different kind. It's like in prison, the sex perverts are a different type of yeah. criminal, and they they're shunned. And it's it, it's that kind of feel. But the character and the way Tarantino plays it is is actually really good and and the way it's done it's because it's not just a creepy guy who's like oh i like that it's like you actually see from his point of view that he's is not right in the head he's seeing things that aren't happening he's like he and he's really completely um yeah uh, encompassed by these things rather than he's just a bit of a creepy bastard it's really nicely done actually i would honestly point to this as the first clear sign of tarantino growing as a filmmaker because he's this is the first sign of his self-awareness. He's, I mean, it might be down to Rodriguez, but I think it's probably him writing this part. He's playing on his public perception, how people saw him as this creepy guy who's into feet. So he's yeah. leaning into it and playing up to it, and it works. The film is all the better for it. But yeah, I just think this is a great film. Like, the opening scene where they're, you've got this policeman going in for his daily shit in the little truck stop, and then you know, turns out they're in the middle of a hostage situation that's just been walked into, and the geckos are like, what the fuck are you doing? Get rid of him. And it's brilliant. And then, you know, you've got this this tense dynamic, turns into a shootout, you get your violence and action in that set the tone for later. Yep. It it, it plays really well. You, you establish mm. the fact that this character is a liability, um, that these characters are kind of in this moral grey area. Well, no, not even moral grey. They're bad guys. Um, well, yeah, and I think 
a, a very, very crucial element to this film working is George Clooney. Oh, God, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Not just that he's obviously a fantastic actor, but making that character who is really evil and nasty piece of work just likable. Yeah. In in just because of that George Clooney charisma yeah. in the in the way we talked about like how Brad Pitt exactly. can do that. There's I, yeah, not many absolutely. actors who could have made that character work mm-hmm. in the way that it needs to yeah. work. Yeah. I, and I, it's I, the I'm fact that you do like him actually makes you feel quite nasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does, yeah. And I don't know, I think because obviously what they go through at the end of the film and the vampires come out and start killing people is, you know, it's such an ordeal, you're quite forgiving <laughs> of uh <Yeah. laughs> things up until that point but um and we've touched on it but the other highlight here is harvey keitel who is mm. i mean i think he's fantastic in the role here he plays this uptight nerdy preacher it's the um the classic thing of the preacher who's lost his faith and doesn't believe in god mm-hmm. but then obviously these vampires come out and it's like oh shit like hell is real demons exist I guess I believe I need to sort my life out. Like, yeah, and they, and they do this fantastic, um, you know, action movie, Bruce Campbell esque badass, you know, bit at the end where he's he's shouting Bible verses and they're attacking with holy water. And I think the the <laughs> finale of this film is fantastic. I think it plays so well. It's such fantastic horror comedy stuff. I really really love this film. It, this is one I can just go back to again and again and just enjoy. I think the tone is perfect. It's funny. It's exciting. You know, it's it's an interesting film. It it, it pushes ideas of like narrative structure and filmmaking rules. I I think it gets away with it. It's incredibly well written. Like ignoring that big structural thing. Just just mm-hmm. the way certain character dynamics and perspectives and the way things are shifted. Yeah. It's it's yeah, great, uh, great, and, and just I mean, go yeah, on. and like yeah, a real. Uh, I mean, this uh, film made Clooney as well. We should add, he got Batman off the back yeah. of this. Oh, certainly in film terms, yeah, yeah. This launched him from ER. Tarantino had uh, just directed a couple of episodes of ER, which is where they met, I believe. Yes. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So that's uh, and we. I'm, I suspect we'll do an episode on that. In, yeah, because there are sequels I've never watched that are famous. Yeah, bad. some very cheap sort of low-budget knockoff sequels. Oh yeah, so I just wanted to touch on, we, we've spoken about Tarantino's infamous foot fetish, but if I recall correctly, Alan, you have this particular... Um, <laughs> uh, well, not, not exactly, trait. not exactly, not exactly. Um, and definitely not... It's so notable watching Tarantino's films how often women's feet are in his mouth. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, how didn't, often is just focusing on was feet. Was it your house, Dan, that Alan was at and you'd left the sock on the floor and he asked you to put it away because it was turning him on? <laughs> yeah, it was. It wouldn't have been a man's sock. Come on, what do you think I am, a pervert? I, I lived with some women, so. <laughs> Oh, that's all right. <laughs> oh god! Actually, I, but that's the weird thing is, I, I think I'm more into socks and feet. I don't know if that's weird. I or, thought you were more. Oh, I get that. I, I'm, I, I'm I was more got... into. I'm more into corsets and torsos, so I totally understand that. <laughs> uh, do you know how? Do you know how from *Dust Till Dawn* came about? Tarantino was. Is, I think it was one of the first films he was paid to write. Oh really? Um, so it wasn't just a spec script. No, uh, so Robert Kurtzman, who is a name you might know, he's a big name mm-hmm. in horror makeup, uh, he did the makeup in Reservoir oh, yeah. Dogs for free for the air scene, 
uh, on the condition that Tarantino write this film based on an idea he'd had so that his special effects company could have like a, a showcase of their um, abilities. And yeah. I mean, yeah. I, if there's one thing I'm not a big fan of in this film, it is the transformation effects, that kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer style morphing. Yeah, it's very TV, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. sort of 90s TV. Yeah, I, I guess the makeup's mean. pretty good, and the, certainly the actual practical effects are great. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is talking about the cast as well, like we did with Reservoir Dogs. This is a film that's elevated by its cast. You've got we, we've already spoken about the core people, but then you've got you know Cheech Marin as three different characters. All right, pussy, 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 come on in, pussy lovers. Here at the Diddy Twister, we're slashing pussy in half. Give us an offer on our best selection of pussy. This is a pussy blowout. All right, we got white pussy, black pussy, Spanish pussy, yellow pussy. We got hot pussy, cold pussy. We got wet pussy. We got smelly pussy. We got hairy pussy, bloody pussy. We got snapping pussy. We got silk pussy, velvet pussy, nalga high pussy. We even got horse pussy, dog pussy. Chicken pussy, come on, you want pussy? Come on in, pussy lovers. If we don't got it, you don't want it. Come on in, pussy lovers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great, you get you really get your value out of him. Exactly. I can't believe An- Antonio Banderas didn't turn up at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you've just got like this cavalcade of horror B movie legends in the bar, the Titty Twister, Tom Savini, yeah. Danny Trejo, yeah. um, Fred Williamson. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Not the best actors. But <laughs> no, but for it, that's almost your hint, like. This is about to turn into a B movie horror film. Yeah, although I actually think Danny Trejo is a great actor. But yeah, you're right. It's a B movie film, that, a B movie feel to it. That's that's exactly correct because yeah. it doesn't feel like that at first, and then it kind of becomes that as soon as you get into the titty twister. They could have slapped some um, fake degrading film effect over this and put it out as half of Grindhouse. Like it's yeah. <laughs> um, one more quick comment. You know the uh, arguably the best line in the film, the the classic "I have a wife" joke is. And which which which, which joke? What is? I'm not gonna drain you completely. You'll be my slave. Because I don't think you're worthy of human blood. You'll feed on the blood of stray dogs. You'll be my footstool, and at my command, you lick the dog shit from my boot heel. Since you'll be my dog. Your new name will be Spot. Welcome to slavery. No thanks. I already had a wife. Oh yeah, yeah. Apparently George Clooney improvised that and it was supposed to be like Robert Rodriguez was wasn't even planning to leave it in the film, but the trailer people put it in the marketing and it became like <laughs> this huge popular line. So he was like, oh, I've gotta leave it in now because people will be upset if it's not there. Alan, what would you rate it? Um, I gave it eight. Okay. Daniel, do you want to rate it? It's a, sol- it's a solid eight from me. From this is very very impressive. Well, this used to be an eight for me until the most recent viewing, and I just I thought you know what this holds up so well, and I I see new aspects that I love every time. So I've actually bumped this up to a nine. Ooh. Um, Ooh. So yeah, nine for me. Tarantino, uh, he did a bit of in uncredited script work, uh, script doctoring uh, between, um, I think between four rooms and his next film. Uh, 
on Crimson Tide for Tony Scott and The really? Rock, Michael Bay's good film. Interesting. So hmm. don't don't feel it. Do you? It's not like their dialogue. No, I know, I know. Yeah, but I mean, films. The Rock is notably the one Michael Bay film where the script actually holds up. So <laughs> maybe that's got something to do with it. Uh, and then we come to the last film of the episode. Yeah. Probably Tarantino's least well-known um, out of his main canon, would you say? Yeah. Jackie Brown. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Jackie Brown, essentially his third film Yeah. Um, from a his, directing point of view. His homage to uh, the black exploitation genre. I mean, that's kind of how it was intended. I don't think that really comes He's, across very Yeah, much, it doesn't... I, that's what I always hear. And obviously you've got Pam Greer there. Um, and... Uh, it it doesn't come across. It it doesn't have the style of black exploitation in the same way that like Kill Bill has a martial arts film yeah. style to it or Django Unchained's Western. Yeah, Django Unchained's more black exploitation than this film. in terms of how it's put together and made. But the way this is shot, the way that the plot is quite convoluted, is not very in keeping with black exploitation. Mm. It's, it's it doesn't feel like black exploitation at all. It's sort of like that's something that's said about it, which I've never yeah I've never quite bought into that. So you you watch this specifically for this podcast? That's is that right, Dan? Uh, well, it's always been on the list, but never really had a reason to sit down and watch yeah. it. Like in particular, this is a film I only came to quite you know the last few years. Compared to the other Tarantino films, it took me a while to get to it. I had yeah. watched it a while ago. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it for years. I've seen it, but it was a long time ago. I couldn't have told you in much detail. So, uh, yeah, it was fairly new to me. And, I mean, I, I forgot Robert De Niro was in it altogether, actually. It was a pleasant surprise when I sat down to watch it again. Was Yeah, I was not expecting him to be in it, and then I was not expecting the type of character that he plays to for, for him to play that character. It was just... He wanted to play the Samuel L. Jackson role, Ordell Robbie, and I'm, I think like Tarantino was like well no that's Samuel L Jackson sorry that's like a deal breaker <laughs> and but but I do still need to cast this other part if you're interested and he was like all right well I want to work with Tarantino just a side note of Samuel Jackson's ponytail it was very amusing to it was an interesting uh, costume choice and character think, style for I might for be that. wrong saying this I think that was Samuel L Jackson's doing I think he wanted that haircut and just said, like, my character should have this. Well, can I make a, a sort of my major complaint with this film? It's yeah. kind of relevant to what we've just been saying. I think the casting is all off. Um, and now... Yeah, I get... Yeah, not I agree. totally off. I think Samuel L. Jackson is doing what he does, and that's fine, although it's not quite as magic as Samuel L. Jackson can be. Pam Greer, I think, is solid. Robert Forster's solid. But Robert Forster has a very naturalistic style, which doesn't quite... He's the highlight come across of here. for me. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm not sure it quite fits with the film. I like his what he's doing. Other than those guys, everyone else, it just feels very bland. Like, they're not bringing it. And Robert De Niro brings nothing to that character at all. And there's not a lot there. I, but... I, I think there's an element of... He, he, he does a really good job playing the part. And I think it's interesting to see him kind does. of play against type to a point. I don't know. I, I think this is a good example of De Niro being a real fucking pro actor, actually. I think he brings a lot of small, little, subtle details to a role without overshadowing anyone, without it being too obvious what he's doing. I think he's actually very good here. I, I think he's no, being I think cast it's just, in a it's weird just... role for him, but I think he really rises to off. the... 
you know. But challenge. no, I don't. I just find it very bland. I think he's bland. Bridget Fonda's bland. Michael Keaton is bland. It was blandness, and it was just like I want some more character here. I want the, and it, and and the film's too slow to get away with it. It needs more. It just needs a bit. I more do. Life I do agree it. with you there. It did uh, yeah. It did take and, a while I, for me to get into it when I was watching. Yeah, it, I, I, I agree with that as well. I, I think Samuel L. Jackson is perhaps a bit miscast here because I don't know. He, he he's not. I don't really know what level his character's pitched at. It's like, is he... He's almost too friendly, the way he comes across, just inherently in this film, is, like, mm. quite personable. But then I think he's meant to be quite unpleasant and menacing, like, the stuff he does. But then I, it just doesn't quite... I don't know how I'm meant to take him. Isn't that way. isn't that why it's so eerie, the fact that he is kind of like your best friend that you'd have a chat with and a drink with that then might just, you know, shoot Maybe. you in the stomach in the car in the middle of nowhere? But, like. then, <laughs> but then it just doesn't... It never really comes across to me that that's what they're going for, if that is the idea. Yeah. And the problem with that is that you've got the Bridget Fonda's character who just disrespects him all the time and just yeah. tells him to fuck off. <laughs> and he never really chastises it. Like, even in a kind of menacing way, he just lets her get away with it. And so you don't feel that threatening by him. Like, Well, this is it. I, I think Robert De Niro's character is far more that. That menacing could turn on you out of nowhere. Because he, he does. Because he, he does. Goes, right, I've had enough of this. Shoot. Bam. Um, yeah, you're dead now. That, just, that felt like too out of nowhere for me. Like if he just smacked her or something, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, it was too late in the game. I agree. I I think we needed more of that earlier. But I I agree though. Like I think out of all of Tarantino's films, this one's just lacking in personality, and it almost yeah. It, it it's it's almost like he's got so much reverence for the book that it's based on by Elmore Leonard. Because yeah. this is, we should mention, actually, the the only time in Tarantino's entire career that he has adapted an existing property rather than writing something that's quote-unquote original. And it, it feels like he's scared to mess around. Like, he's got so much respect for the fact that someone else has mm. written this or part of it, and it's their story and it's their characters. He can't quite make it his own in this. He's like, Yeah, and I mean, I th- yeah. the thing is, he does, like... He has made it his own insofar as um, Jackie Brown is uh, a white woman in the book and she's not called Jackie Brown. Um, yeah, but that's details, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. it certainly doesn't feel Tarantino esque in terms of the dialogue. There's no real snap to it. Maybe a little bit with Samuel Jackson every now and then, but. I don't think Tarantino's got a cameo in it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> See him him playing the Robert De Niro part. We could see. <laughs> it's just very restrained, and it's a it's an odd choice for him. It almost feels like he was shying away, trying to take a step back from what he was known for. Or it's the kind of film you'd expect to see if he just made a real stinker and had become derided, and people were saying, "Oh, you know, like like Tim Burton nowadays," or. Um, mm-hmm. M. Night Shyamalan or something, and then they come back with this kind of smaller, muted film that just kind of shows, look, I can make a quality product. And then we do start playing with it at the end, where we see the actual kind of the denouement, the heist bit, yeah, from several different perspectives. That's true. That's where we get to start to see that, and it does work, but 
My general problem with this is that I never felt tense. I never felt that the stakes were there. And I don't know why that was, because in terms of the character, it's a tense situation. But perhaps just in terms of direction, it didn't come across. Well, that's what you guys were saying before, though, of like um, Samuel Jackson's character basically... Very nearly, very near the beginnings of the film, we have Jackie Brown turn to him and say, "Basically, don't fuck with me." And he goes, "Yeah, all right." <laughs> and that's it. We lose, we lose <laughs> that level of like tension between is, yeah, the good and the bad guy, always, so to speak. Like, yeah, you, you always get the sense that she can kind of talk her way out of a bad situation with him and the police as well. Yeah. You never really. Yeah, get she has sense. a bit too much control, doesn't yeah. she, for someone who's reeling? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, as far as, like, I think this is a perfectly pleasant little film, and it it does the mm. trick. It's just you kind of expect more from Tarantino. And again, there's a subset yeah. of Tarantino fans who will point to this as, no, look, he's this is his best work, and it's like, no, it's not. That's it. I've I've, <laughs> I've heard of people put this really high on a pedestal, like of, oh, you need to watch Jackie Brown because it's his best film. So like, yeah. then when coming to watch it, I had like. Yeah. high expectations of what it was going to be and like you said it's a it's a pleasant film i've seen people point to it as proof that he can direct when people say he can't and i think that might just be because this is such a this is this is inoffensive direction you know it's not taking the risks and the weird punches that he normally does with his directing mm-hmm. yeah he can put together a mainstream film i suppose but like roger ebert was like i think he said this was tarantino's best film like it is it's a weird little underground opinion that exists and i just find it very strange because it's it's in the bottom half of his career for me I, I, if tarantino directed stuff like that he probably would just go on to be a, a director who adapts people's books a lot maybe makes a marvel film yeah um you know it's it's not what he's known for but it's not bad it's good directing he, he'd be a um i'm trying to think of an analogy now a tony scott i don't know <laughs> um the, the ending was a bit anticlimactic of the film in the sense that it was like how will we get rid of this guy shoot him okay yeah um and obviously it's a bit more complex than that because they do it in such a way that they get away with this money and nobody even realizes and the police think they've cleaned everything up so okay there's more to it than that but it was just a bit like oh is, is that the end okay. yeah and it, it's it's more about robert forster's uh max cherry character and his dynamic yeah. with uh jackie brown isn't it really the yeah. conclusion of the film I don't really have much else to say about it. It's not bad at all. Um, True. I still enjoyed the soundtrack in the film, and like something we haven't really mentioned well, on any of the. I was going to um, say I, I've, I'm very aware we haven't touched on the soundtrack really to these films yet. Um, I'm definitely going to go into it a lot next week, but um, yeah, I mean, this is one thing Tarantino's known for. He's one of these uh, sort of directors who likes to play DJ and will curate a. a well, yeah, give him credit, an amazing soundtrack of songs. He, he mm-hmm. always pulls out wonderful music. Um, he really does. But Yeah, it he makes also it work never... in a relevant way. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He he also is an odd director in that until very recently he's made a big song and dance out of not letting composers make music for his films. And he just yeah. uses music from other films to score what he's doing. And I, I think there's something to be said for that, and it certainly adds to a film. At the same time, I think Tarantino's got a lot of credit for purely picking out a good song to play over the opening credits, and yeah. this is no exception. You know, I I love Across 110th Street. It's an amazing song. Yeah, uh, it really is. But at the same time, 
I feel like Tarantino's cheating because I love the opening of this film, but it's just because I love that song. And it's a nice shot that it's <laughs> playing over the top of but Does he get credit for that? I mean, yeah, I but... can build a playlist as well, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> but um, I, I do intend to go into that in a bit more detail next week. Um, so, ratings <laughs> for Jackie Brown? Um, it's a seven for me. Solid seven. Seven for me, yeah. Uh, because it was the first time, because of the expectation, eh, and I enjoyed it more than I thought I was gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a yeah, an eight. But that would probably change okay. if I watched it another time. But like, I think first time watching. I think if anything, I enjoyed it more on this rewatch because I, I think I went in with um, lower expectations than yeah. I did the first time. So I, I, yeah. I think it's a solid seven. It's just you kind of hope for more from Tarantino. Yeah, maybe it's just, yeah, it's just unremarkable. Um. Anyway, I mean, yeah, that's that's uh, the first biggest chunk of his career that we're going to be covering. We'll be covering uh, Kill Bill and Grindhouse. Arguably, only two films next week. Also, arguably, four films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. But. Time to do some sequel stuff, as that's what we, that's what this mm-hmm. show is. Now, interestingly, there there is yet to be a sequel to any of Tarantino's core films. From Dust Till Dawn does have sequels, but um, there's yet to be any to his directorial efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, Kill Bill is one story. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, sorry, ignoring yeah. Igno- Kill Bill was shot as one film and chopped up. So ignoring that. But Tarantino has come very close on a number of times. He's always talking about sequels he wants to make. So do you want to know all the sequels I researched that were oh, yeah, talked yeah, about? Yeah, go for it, yeah. Alright, so Pulp Fiction. This is one of the most well-known, I think. Double V Vega, which was oh, yeah. the... the uh, what are they called? Vincent Vega and... Uh, Vic Vega. Vic Vega from Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction uh, are brothers in Tarantino's shared universe that he does. <laughs> uh, and he's spoken at length about his desire to do this kind of crossover sequel about their time in Amsterdam. So I guess a prequel actually to Pulp Fiction. Um, and Reservoir yeah. Dogs, because they die. <laughs> but yeah, about their time together in Amsterdam, you'd see him go into the McDonald's and order a, a Big Mac and they'd go, what, Big Mac? Le Big Mac? What are you talking about? Um <laughs> I don't think it's a great loss that that never got made, honestly. Nothing about it sounds particularly um, amazing. Now they're both too old for it to ever happen. Wouldn't it be even better now? Well, <laughs> at one point, apparently after they got too old, he, he was talking, Tarantino was talking about how he'd rewritten it to work as a um, those two playing another two brothers that happen to look exactly like the younger two brothers who meet at the funeral of their uh, siblings to mourn them. But <laughs> I just can't see it ever happening at this point. I think no, unlikely. Passed. I think Tarantino is probably not interested in doing it anymore. Mm. Especially now Tarantino switched gear into, I'm making ten films and that's my legacy and then I'm out. And he's got two films left if he stays true to that. And I mean, I don't know if he will or not, but if anyone's going to stay true to that I'm retiring nonsense, it's him. Um, uh, The other idea was he was going to do a sequel all about Jules Winfield going off and... and... Walk in the earth type thing. Yeah, basically. Yeah, that makes... That's the obvious route, I guess. And um, some people 
Now that that could be a black exploitation film. Yeah, yeah, it could. that would work. Really we could well, do actually. that. There, there is a fan theory that he becomes the the pianist in um, Kill Bill, who because he talks is, yeah. he talks about wandering the earth, just playing the piano and blah 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 blah. Now Jackie Brown is a bit of a weird one because uh, it was based on the book Rum Punch, and there was a. a an adaptation of another book starring Michael Keaton as that same character from the book. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is technically, arguably, a sequel. It was directed by other people. And someone called Dan Dan Schechter, I think that is, was developing an, adapta- uh, an adaptation of a Jackie Brown prequel novel oh. uh, in 2012, but I don't think it ever got made. And there's also uh, Tarantino's spoken about wanting to adapt a book called Forty Lashes Less One, uh, which was another book by the same author, uh, El- Elmore Leonard. And he's spoken about maybe doing that as an HBO miniseries or something like that. So, I mean, this I think if he does say, right, I'm done with my 10 films, I think he will just be like, right, I'll make a miniseries. And... Over, over to TV now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they're they're the ones for this week. I've, I've got more of this for each of his films as we carry on going. But yeah, <laughs> so what would we do with that? Oh, should we pitch a new Tarantino film or an actual sequel to one of these? I mean, Pulp Fiction's the one we were, I guess, meant to be doing. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying about earlier, how they were potentially all within the same universe, well, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. What about some uh, weird crossover film with uh, characters from uh, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Jackie Brown? Well, if we're gonna do this, let's make it the let's make it the big Tarantino blowout bonanza, and we link <laughs> it all together. Link everyone. Yeah. yeah. I've made a list here, which was my best effort at figuring out the chronology of this Tarantino universe, and I think there's some messy stuff here. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but um, okay, so we start in the wild, wild west. Yeah. Uh, you know, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight Days. This is a little preview for upcoming episodes as well, obviously. Uh, here we meet Oswaldo Mowbray, uh, later revealed to be the English Pete Hickox, Tim Roth. Then cut forward to 1940s Inglorious Bastards. We meet a British World War II agent, great 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 grandson of Pete Hickox, Archie Hickox, played by Michael Fassbender. Obviously, World War II goes down very differently, with Hitler being killed a lot earlier and by the yeah. Americans. And it, essentially, it it has the impact of uh, desensitizing Americans to violence and making them put more emphasis on pop culture because cinema and film <laughs> has such a big part in bringing him down. He's at the premiere of a film. He's in a cinema. Sergeant Donnie Donowitz goes on to have a son, Lee Donowitz, who grows up with huge reverence for pop culture and cinema because of his dad's role in the war. He becomes the character we see in True Romance, the film producer. Um, Then at some point pre-1992, the Vega brothers hang out in Amsterdam. Vincent runs a club for Marcellus Wallace. Uh, That's when they go to McDonald's and order beers and things. Then 1992, uh, Vic joins a heist as seen in Reservoir Dogs, or not seen in Reservoir Dogs, I suppose. We first meet Vic, we hear about his parole officer, Seymour Scugnetti. Uh, in the script, Eddie says Bonnie's going to take care of the dying guy. That's the nurse I mentioned before. Mr. White's like, he needs a doctor, not a nurse. Uh, obviously, yeah. she then pops up in one form in Pulp Fiction. 
Mr. White mentions that he was uh, mentoring a call girl, Alabama, uh, as later seen in True Romance. 1994, Vincent Vagan does all the Pulp Fiction. Seems like Harvey Keitel is related to Jimmy Dimmick, although that's not 100%. Bonnie Nurse, brother of Seymour, as mentioned before. Detective Jax Gugnetti becomes famous for tracking down and catching Mickey and Mallory Knox, as seen in Natural Born Killers. Uma Thurman talks about the Fox Force 5, her failed pilot, uh, in which there was a blonde one, she was the leader, the Japanese fox was a kung fu master, the black girl was a demolition expert, the French fox, uh, her speciality was sex, the character I played was the deadliest woman in the world with a knife. Uh, that is, of course, something that will come up later. Then From Dust Till Dawn's released into the cinemas within this world, perhaps starring Jimmy Dimmick? He, he was hanging around in Hollywood in 1996, maybe he was trying to be an actor. <laughs> 2003, Kill Bill is released uh, within this universe. It seems to be a film based on the Fox Force 5. Um, <laughs> although this doesn't quite work because, as an inconsistency, uh, when she's buried alive in Kill Bill, it's under the grave of Paula Schultz, who is the wife of Dr. King Schultz, as seen in Django Unchained, who of course was real and not part of a film. So none of this quite adds up at all, and it's stupid. <laughs> Uh, and then we've got then we've got the McGraw brothers who play those Texas Rangers and they just exist in half brothers, they're fa- the father and son. Oh you're right, they are the McGraw, sorry, yeah, father and son. And they're in From Dust Till Dawn, Death Proof, Planet Terror. One of them has a daughter called Dakota, she's in Planet Terror. And I stopped bothering reading into it because it just keeps going. <laughs> so <laughs> So how can we tie that all together in one big film? <laughs> By making um, Tarantino the main <laughs> protagonist of it all, he's going on an adventure throughout time. They all die and go to the afterlife, and Tarantino <laughs> is God. The idea of um, Tarantino has a magic cinema that he can go into, like uh, Last Action <laughs> Hero. <laughs> and uh, no, it's well, it's Last Action Hero. That's what they do in that. Although in that, it's a. I think what if this is a Tarantino film, it has to be the the final film in his canon, his tenth and final film. Which would make sense <laughs> for it to be like a sequel to everything he's done prior to that. Like, yeah, I mean, he's he's making his ninth now, and he is allegedly officially directing a Star Trek film, but he's not writing it. So I think he'll, I think he'll be like that one doesn't count. I didn't write it. If he even makes That's a it. weird choice for a Star that's Trek if he even film. makes it. I wouldn't be surprised. If that <laughs> I mean, should we go back to what we were saying before? So, what what have we got? If we were going to do a direct sequel here, Jackie Brown, there's loads of books uh, in that series that you could draw on, but it's not... No one's that interested, I think. No. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, no one needs a sequel to that. It's very self-contained. But yeah, Pulp Fiction, if I was going to pick something that I wanted to see, I think it would be the Jules um, from Pulp Fiction continuation. I think that character's yeah. Yeah. so just wonderful. You could just watch him do anything. But then is that is that a sequel or more of just a spin-off? Works either way. Yeah, spin-off would be fine. The Jules spin-off. You could ease, you could make a sequel and follow Bruce Willis and other characters on, but I they don't really need to. <laughs> Tim Roth and Co. see what gets up happens to them. He becomes a bellboy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's if we take on the Jules uh walks walks the world storyline. That would probably be really well suited to doing black exploitation. Yeah, um, but I actually don't know that much about black exploitation to be able to pitch you an idea. Mm. I think, um, and this is it. Tarantino really seems like he not so much his early work, so we haven't really 
spoken about it, but he seems very much now like, I just want to make my version of a film in this genre and tick them off. I, yeah. This is a genre I love. I'm doing one of these. All right, I'm going to do one of these now. And yeah. he's done that. He's done that with Westerns. He's done it with World War II films. Uh, he's done it with Kung Fu films. And there's not a huge amount left for him. I, like I say, I think sci-fi. horror and sci-fi, Star Trek, that'll be his, his sci-fi if he does make it. He, he dabbles with horror and Death Proof as well, I suppose, but yeah. he's never quite done it. I think he used to say he wanted to do one, but then he, he sort of changed his tune and was like, I don't really care. He also said he wanted to do a musical, actually. Um, but he Ooh. But I don't know, Ooh. I just cannot see that... <laughs> Can we not can make the life? That? Can we not make the life of Jules into some kind of musical on his way? You know, he's he's yeah. like semi-religious. You know, get all a bit gospel, gospel. and everything. Like, yeah. Whoopi yeah, Goldberg really. in there, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh... what do you think would happen with Jules if we were to follow him? I mean, do you think he'd stay a changed man? Do you think he'd fall back into old habits? Well, like, where where do we? Well, that would be the the path of the film, wouldn't it? He'd be he's his new. His new sense is being challenged. Just as I'm trying to get out, they pull me back in. It would be that. <laughs> where, 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 where does this film start? Where would it? Does it start as we leave him in Pulp Fiction? Do we? Does he get up from the restaurant and the, this new film starts? Or? Well, I, I think ideally it would open on him leaving the diner, but it was like twenty years ago. So, but surely the the, the best thing would be. Yeah. He wants to walk away and then not very long after his good old partner Vincent is is killed. Of course, yeah. Oh sure, um, yeah. And and then Marcellus Wallace for some reason that he can't he won't tell him says no I'm going to let the guy go. Uh the the boxer. And so yeah. it's like Jules yeah. Jules has to find Bruce Willis. Shit, man. I I hadn't considered this, but this is set up for a really good yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he's everyone knows everyone knows that Bruce Willis killed one of his men, and he's not doing anything about it. And they're all like, "What the fuck's going on?" And then Jeremy Irons threatens them with a bomb, and they have to work together. There's a significant amount of explosive in the trash receptacle next to you. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Every wife had seven sacks. Every sack has seven cats. Every cat has seven kittens. Kittens, cats, sacks, and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? My phone number is 555. No, 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 wait. I didn't get all that. Say it again. Not a chance. My phone number is 555 and the answer. Call me in 30 seconds or die. All right, seven guys with seven wives. Shut up, McLean. I'm good at this. Seven guys with seven wives. Shut the fuck up, McLean. Uh, brilliant yeah we have established in multiple films at this point that bruce willis and samuel l jackson is a dynamite combination yeah right (laughs) obviously they don't have any scenes together in pulp fiction but die hard with a vengeance and unbreakable um two of the finest performances from either actor and they just play off each other so well don't they in both of those films so yeah i mean Fuck, let's let's do this. Let's get him on screen together again. Like, I can't believe that we didn't actually see the potential for this sequel whilst talking about it. The fact <laughs> it is very much set up. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, but I think up. I think the actual journey would be perhaps he does go and he he's the one who finds Bruce Willis and they're gonna go, Yeah, we're gonna get our revenge and we don't know why Marcellus Wallace isn't letting us. Amazingly, we've gone a whole episode without touching on what a prevalent 
theme revenge is for Tarantino. It's in almost all of his films. Is the yes, not I mean it's more Kill Bill onwards, but it's a major theme throughout his material. Yeah. So yeah. I think this would be very in, very on brand for Tarantino to. Um, and then this this could be the ultimate challenge of Jules's newfound faith, and or, or not even faith necessarily, but oh man, you know what this this genuinely, <laughs> I wouldn't mind this as like the tenth and final film from Tarantino. Bring it all back to Pulp Fiction. Bring it all yeah. back to the nearly the start. Even if it's like several years on, and he's been hunting him down, and he finally gets a lead. Or yeah, something. it's it's twenty year, twenty five years on, and he's like he's been walking the world, and it's like this is the one thing he's always sort of wondered about, Needed he's to always do. regretted. Yeah. yeah, and so he goes and finds Bruce Willis, not necessarily to try and kill him. I think they would, but just to kind of make find some closure, and then it becomes this sort of character drama between the two of them. And then if you need to make it exciting, then they have to team up to fight some common foe or something. On one hand, it feels like the time has passed. And on the other hand, I think Tarantino's still such a big draw. Pulp Fiction's still such a big deal that you start putting the marketing out for that and people would get excited for it. And hell, look, like, Glass is coming out next year that follow up to Unbreakable. So, like, just because it feels like the time's passed doesn't mean that... It, it necessarily has. has. Yeah, I, f- so. I think that's a, a weird thing that's going on in cinema, anyways. I think purely because purely because Tarantino has made such a big song and dance about ten films and out, and that's it for me, and that's the end of my career. If he's going to stay true to that, I think you know, I think it'd be weird if his tenth and final film is just any old a standalone. Film, you know, like, and mm. I, this would be a really nice way to serve as like a, a a bow on the end of it, cap it all off. Let's revisit the early stuff kind of you know look at people aging and so on he he had similar plans for kill bill but i'll go into that next week um yeah no i am happy with that i i'd really like that I'll go on tarantino go off and write it and pop a check in the mail yeah you can have that one for free tarantino yeah i would like you Tar- in fact tarantino have it for free don't even have to credit us just uh, just do some interviews and tell people to listen to Diminishing Returns podcast. In fact, in fact, in fact, in the film, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's driving and he's listening to it. Brilliant. On the oh, I'm happy with that. Yeah. I'm happy with that. Seems like something he'd be into. Yeah, yeah. I reckon he'd be, he's a changed man. He'd be well into film discussion. Or, or we could have Jimmy Dimmick somehow in the film and he's listening to it because that's more that's the kind of character he's listening to our show (laughs) that's that's such a fucking diss against our listeners (laughs) 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 I mean but Samuel L. Jackson's not listening though is he is oh god (laughs) right Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Diminishing Returns. Remember to come back not only next week, but the week after that as well for parts two and three of our Quentin Tarantino season. Next week we'll be covering Kill Bill and Grindhouse. As ever, please uh, like us on our social media platforms, facebook.com forward slash Diminishing Returns podcast. Twitter, where we are, at DimReturnsPod, SoundCloud, iTunes, review us, tell your friends. Tell Quentin Tarantino, tell him what we're up to, get him listening. He's a film fan, he'll enjoy this. Alright, bye. What do we call you, sir? 
First name, Mr. Last name. Bad motherfucker. <laughs>